John Bunyan was a 17th century pastor who wrote the greatest piece of literature that was ever produced originally in the English language. The Pilgrim's Progress is its name. It's an allegory about a man who is converted to Jesus Christ and then makes his way on a journey from the city of destruction to the city that is celestial. In his book, Bunyan introduces us to this main character, this man who he names Christian, and describes the trials and difficulties of the journey. Early in his journey, Christian is taken to the house of interpreter. And in this house, he's given many lessons that will serve him well in his Christian pilgrimage. One of those lessons centers upon a portrait that's hanging on a wall. I want to read to you how Bunyan portrays this lesson. He writes, Christian saw a picture of a very grave person hang hang up against the wall. And this was the fashion of it. It had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, and the law of truth was written upon his lips. The world was behind his back. He stood as if pleading with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. And so Christian says to interpreter, what does this mean? Interpreter answers, the man whose picture this is, is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travail in birth with children, and nurse them himself when they are born. And whereas you see him with eyes lift up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, and the law of truth writ upon his lips, it is to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners even as also you see him stand as if he pleaded with men. And whereas you see the world cast behind him and that a crown hangs over his head, that is to show you that slighting and despising the things that are present for the love that he has to his master's service, he is sure that in the world that comes next to have glory for his reward. Now said the interpreter, I showed you this picture first, Because the man whose picture this is, is the only man whom the Lord of this place where you are going has authorized to be your guide in all difficult places that you may meet with in the way. Wherefore, take good heed to what I have showed you and bear well in your mind what you have seen, lest in your journey you meet with some that pretend to lead you right, but their way goes down to death. The point that Bunyan is making in this lesson is that faithful gospel ministers are invaluable to Christians in their journey from this world to the world to come. They are necessary for the welfare of our souls, and that is why God has ordered the church the way that he has. Because that is true, one result or one clear strategy of the devil is to try to undermine faithful gospel ministries and ministers or to try to cause people to think that they don't really need such faithful gospel ministries so very often the devil will try to create difficulties between christians and such ministries and cloud that relationship with suspicion and ill will The Apostle Paul faced such a satanic attack in his relationship to the church at Corinth, a church that he himself planted on his missionary travels. In our studies in recent weeks of 2 Corinthians, 
we have seen that one of the main reasons that Paul wrote this letter back to the church was because there was a strained relationship between him and the congregation. And he was trying to address that relationship. After he left Corinth, false apostles came into the church and began to undermine his credibility. They began to suggest to people in the church that Paul's authority as an apostle, as an apostle really wasn't that significant. And they damaged the relationship that existed. Last week, as we studied through chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, we ended with verse 11. And in that verse, we saw that Paul warns that they must not be outwitted by Satan because he knows of Satan's designs. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, and look all the way down to the end of the chapter, where we see Paul continuing to defend his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ by correcting a very common misconception about what faithfulness in Christian ministry actually entails. His critics in Corinth have pointed to his changed plans that he revealed to them as his intent, along with all the different difficulties that he encountered in his life as an apostle, and they began to raise questions about him. I mean, if he's really God's man, should he be having all these trials, difficulties? If he's really God's man, why would he say one thing and then do something else? Why would he say he's coming at this time and then not do it? If he's really God's man, wouldn't he be blessed by God? And wouldn't such blessings manifest themselves in obvious power and possessions and prestige? Well, Paul starts to address these misconceptions in the text that we're going to look at this morning. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, continuing to verse 17. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have provided for you in the chair backs, that's found on page 965. I encourage you to get a copy and follow along because we're going to be referring to the things that Paul actually wrote as we talk through this passage of Scripture. If you're not accustomed to reading the Bible, the big numbers on the page are the chapter divisions, the little numbers are the verse divisions. And if you don't have a Bible that you can read easily at home, we encourage you to take the one that's in the chair in front of you. It would be our joy to make a gift of that to you. Hear the Word of God from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 down through verse 17. Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Faithfulness in Christian ministry brings both trials and triumph. Paul experienced both. The trials the Corinthians saw and took as an indication that he must not really be 
a significant apostle, if an apostle at all. The triumph they did not recognize because they lost sight of the overarching design of God in his apostle's life. So Paul continues to describe a bit of what he went through as he waited Titus's return from Corinth with news about the church. And in doing so, describing what was going on as he waited, he gives us another glimpse into his own life, into his inner thinking, into his emotional life as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what Paul says in these verses about the nature and the work of Christian ministry and the trials and triumphs of it, he applies to himself primarily as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that there are no more apostles today. No more apostles in the sense that the New Testament defines apostles in men like John and Peter and Paul himself. However, there is ongoing apostolic ministry today. And you see apostolic ministry taking place when the word of God is central and the truth of that word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is being portrayed and proclaimed and is organizing a life individually or corporately in a church. So whenever we see this, we can acknowledge apostolic ministry. So while we're not apostles, and Paul applies this this, teaching to himself primarily as an apostle, what we need to recognize as followers of Jesus is that what he says about faithful Christian ministry applies to each one of us. Because each one of us has been called by God to represent him in the world, to minister his word by spreading his gospel and making disciples. So, we will see Paul speak of himself, and then we will see how to apply it in our own lives as Christians. Well, what does Paul teach us in these verses? First thing I want to call to your attention is that faithful Christian ministry inevitably involves trials. Severe trials. Faithful Christian ministry includes severe trials. In verses 12 and 13, Paul resumes an explanation that he began back in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. In those earlier verses, he starts telling the Corinthians why he did not keep his original plans to visit them. He was going to visit them in conjunction with a planned trip to Macedonia. But he didn't do that. And when he didn't do that, the critics in Corinth began to speak against him and accuse him of being wishy-washy of vacillating, of saying one thing and yet doing another. Well, Paul writes earlier in this letter in verse 23 of chapter 1 that the truth of the matter as to why he didn't keep his original plans was something altogether different. He wanted to spare them a hard confrontation that would have necessarily had to take place had he stuck to his original plans because the church had fallen into disarray. There was this stirring up of opposition to his authority as an apostle. And if he went to them at that time, there would have been a significant conflict. And he wanted to spare them that at least for a season and write them a letter in hopes that the letter would do significant work. So here in verse 12 and 13, those verses of chapter 2, Paul gives the rest of the reason as to why he didn't travel when he said he would. Look at verse 12. He says, 
he traveled to Troas to preach the gospel. Rather than going to Corinth, he went 250 miles in the opposite direction to the north to this seaport town of Troas. And notice that he went there not on a whim, not on vacation. He went there on a mission. He went there to preach in this strategic city, this crossroads from Northwest Asia into Europe. Paul had been there before in Acts chapter 16. He was in Troas wanting to go one direction when the Spirit of the Lord compelled him to go over into Europe beginning in the city of Philippi. As he puts it here in our text, Paul says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, this is language that he uses elsewhere. You see it in 1 Corinthians 16. You see it in the book of Acts. When there's this phrase, this idea that God has opened a door, the point is that God has provided an opportunity for the gospel to be preached, for people to be open to the proclamation of the gospel. There was receptivity to it in Troas. Now, evidently, Paul had also arranged to meet Titus in Troas because in verse 13, he says, I did not find my brother Titus there. Titus had left Paul at Ephesus when Paul wrote his letter to Corinth, the severe letter that we don't have in our Bibles, but is referred to in the opening verses of chapter 2. Titus took that letter to Corinth, and he was to bring back a report to Paul about how that letter landed on the church. How did they respond to Paul's severe admonitions in this letter? And he arranged to meet him in Troas. Well, you can sail easily from Corinth to Troas if you sail before winter. So Paul travels to Troas. A door of opportunity in preaching is open to him there. He goes there to preach, and he's waiting for Titus, and winter begins to come, and every ship that arrives, no doubt Paul is looking to see if Titus is on board, and Titus doesn't come. So now Paul is left wondering why Titus hasn't come. In telling us that he went to Troas under these conditions, Paul is illustrating a point that he makes in the following verses we'll look at in more broad terms. The point is this, that God is the one who directs his life and ministry. God is the one who sent him to Troas rather than to Corinth. Now this does not mean Paul was using God as an excuse not to keep his commitments. He's not just kind of Jesus juking the Corinthians here. Well, God told me to do something different so I don't have to keep my commitment. That's not it at all. And brothers and sisters, we shouldn't do that either. You make a commitment, you need to keep your commitment. Understanding that in God's providence, sometimes he changes what you have planned to do. That's what goes on here. What it means for us is that as we make our plans, we are to hold those plans with an open hand. Isn't that exactly what James tells us? We say we're going to go this city tomorrow, we're going to do this kind of business, and James says we ought to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. So we recognize making our plans, developing our intentions is right and good, but we acknowledge that God is sovereign over our lives, over our plans, over our directions, and it's always, if the Lord wills. Paul's ministry in Troas was cut short. And it was cut short by a trial, a severe trial. 
He didn't find Titus there when he expected him to be there. Titus is delayed. He had planned on Titus being there. Titus had planned on coming there. And yet here comes winter when there can be no more ships sailing between Corinth and Troas. The last ship comes to port. Titus isn't on it. And Paul is troubled. What's the reason Titus isn't here? Did things go really badly in Corinth? Did that letter get read to the congregation? Was there just an outbreak of, of rebellion? Have they just cut me off completely? Have, have they dishonored Titus in such a way that he's now somewhere heartbroken himself? No telling what kind of questions are going on in Paul's mind about his relationship that is already strained with this church. Wanting to hear back from Titus before winter. Winter comes, Titus isn't there. And Paul is heartbroken. Paul is distressed. And so he leaves Troas and he travels to Macedonia. Macedonia would have been on the route from Corinth that you would take if you were going to travel by land. And so no doubt part of Paul's thinking is that since Titus didn't show up before winter in Troas, I will come to Macedonia. And when he leaves Corinth to come back, he will come through Macedonia and I will meet him there. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. If you read chapter 7, verse 7 specifically, Paul picks up this kind of uh, travelogue itinerary of his movements and he says that he did see Titus back in Macedonia. Well, one lesson we learn from Paul's describing his movement is this. Being a faithful minister of the gospel can open you to unjust criticism from petty and small-minded people. Now, certainly, there's no gospel minister that is above criticism. And every gospel minister will need criticism at various times. And some gospel ministers will open themselves up to varieties of criticisms for various things that should not be done. But having said that, a faithful gospel minister can also be subject to criticism from small-minded, petty people. The Corinthians criticized Paul for not coming to Corinth. When Paul is explaining to them, the reason I didn't go to Corinth, I didn't want to have this hard conversation with you just yet. And God opened a door for me in Troas where the gospel was running, where people were receptive. And I went to Troas to preach. So they think that Paul should be here doing this. God told Paul, go there and do that. Brothers and sisters, our lives are in the Lord's hands at all times. And we should be willing for Him to change our plans for the sake of advancing the Gospel. That doesn't mean we shouldn't make our plans carefully. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be intentional and seek to follow through on our word diligently, but it does mean we must hold our plans loosely. We make our plans if the Lord wills, with the understanding that He directs our steps, He orders our paths in the way that best serves the advance of His kingdom. Another lesson that we can learn from Paul's opening up his inner life to us this way is that doing God's will does not mean that you will be free from deep, emotional grief Paul was distressed I mean he was significantly upset 
emotionally while preaching the gospel. He's in Troas. God's given him an open door. He's preaching, and yet he tells us that his spirit was not at rest. Now, we could kind of easily gloss over that and say, well, okay, Paul just had a little bit on his mind. That's not it at all. There was a, a deep emotional struggle going on in him. How do we know that? Well, if you want to see more into it, you can turn to chapter 7 and look at verse 5 where he describes what his emotional state was when he arrived in Macedonia, having left Troas. He says there, I was afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. You know, sometimes we can develop a misperception. We can have a misperception about the nature of faithful gospel ministry. And you can do this in a variety of relationships. Parents can develop this. They think, oh, well, if I only do what the Bible tells me, if I do everything the Bible tells me to do in teaching my children, correcting my children, training my children, then I'm not going to have grief. You know, it's going to be easy. There won't be difficulty, and it's just simply not the case. Single adults can think this way. They think, well, if, if I take 1 Corinthians 7 seriously and I try to use my time and energies and opportunities for the advance of the kingdom and I give myself in ministry, then I'm going to be spared the inner turmoils and difficulties and disappointments of life. And it's not true. Pastors can imbibe this misperception as well by thinking, if we just preach the word and care for souls and are true to the scriptures, then surely there won't be any inner grief or turmoil. The truth of the matter is, in all those circumstances and more, it is simply not true. Faithful Christian ministry inevitably includes trials, severe trials. Paul's trials. As he was doing God's will, preaching the gospel in Troas was very taxing, very difficult. Even though God had opened a door for him to preach in Troas, his concerns for the church in Corinth burdened him to the point that he could not keep preaching. So he left. He went to Macedonia. Brothers and sisters, there's a very important insight for us here. If you think about what Paul is telling us happened with him, you will find a wonderful instruction and guide about how to pray for your pastors. How to pray for people who regularly preach God's word. Preaching the word of God is far more than an intellectual exercise. It is an exercise of the heart. Charles Spurgeon, that great English pastor, from the 19th century says preaching is heart work in fact a preacher's heart is the primary instrument that he employs in carrying out his responsibilities now it's true that every christian when your heart is weighed down and your heart is broken you still have to get up in the morning you still have to go about your daily responsibilities that's true for all of us but when a pastor's heart is broken and deeply wounded, he not only has to get up in the morning, he has to work with a broken instrument in his primary calling. And that's what happened to Paul. Paul was at Troas. A door had been opened for the preaching of the gospel. And yet this burden that he felt for the church at Corinth 
was such that he couldn't continue on. It's no wonder that we have written to us as Christians in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that we are to obey those who have authority over us because they keep watch over our souls as those who must give an account. And then the author adds this encouragement. Let them do so with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. A pastor with a burdened heart, a broken heart, is not advantageous to the people that he serves. And Paul, feeling this emotional turmoil in Troas because of what was going on in Corinth and the uncertainty of his relationship with that congregation, says, even though a door was opened for him to preach the gospel in Troas, because his spirit was not at rest, because he was emotionally distressed, he left and he went to Macedonia. Faithful gospel ministry inevitably includes severe trials. But secondly, from our text, what I want us to see this morning is that faithful Christian ministry always results in triumph. Even in the midst of trials, there's triumph. This is what Paul writes in verses 14 and 15 and 16. He explains how faithful ministry is successful, always successful, and he explains it by describing the nature of such ministry and the effects of such ministry. What is the nature of faithful gospel ministry? We could say it quite simply that it is God-directed. God's the one who rules and overrules and directs it. One of the best biographies that I've ever written was written by Laura Hildenbrand, and it's called Unbroken. It's about Louis Zamperini. He was an Olympic athlete who went on to become a World War II hero. His plane, while on a search and rescue mission, was shot down in the Pacific Ocean, and eight of the 11 members of the crew died in the crash. He and two others survived. One of them died at sea. He survived 47 days at sea before being rescued by the Japanese, who took him to a horrific prisoner of war camp and one of the top 40 war criminals became personally involved in making his life miserable. And so for two years, more than two years, he was beaten, he was abused, he was isolated in unspeakable terms. But after the war, four years after the war, he, during those ensuing years, given himself over to alcohol, was a wreck, ruined his marriage, was ruining his life, was near death, thought about killing himself, but God saved him through the preaching of the gospel by Billy Graham. And his life was turned around, and he lived an incredibly useful life up until his 97th year when he died, which was just a couple of years ago. Well, there was a movie that came out about Zamperini where Angelina Jolie, that's her name, right? Anyway, that lady took the book and adapted it for a major motion picture. and She released it two years ago called Unbroken. And it's, it's an incredible movie. Uh, some of the prison of war scenes are pretty graphic and difficult. But the thing that the movie misses is it downplays what happened to Zamperini when he was converted to Jesus Christ. You just kind of get a little footnote in the credits about that. And so she tells a great story 
but the most significant part of the story is left out. So if all you know about Zamperini is what you got from the movie, then you don't see how his life was ruled and overruled by God, directed by God, redeemed by God. And something like that was what was going on with the Corinthians. They're looking at Paul and seeing what Paul does, seeing what happens to Paul, seeing Paul's trials, seeing his travels, and they're forgetting the most significant aspect of Paul's life, that it's being directed by God. That God's ruling and overruling in his life. When you consider that God's the one that directs Paul, you will understand why he didn't go to Corinth. You will understand why he endured all of the suffering that he endured. Paul wants to make this point to the Corinthians, and he explains it to them by highlighting two dimensions of the nature of Christian ministry. First, he teaches us that Christian ministry is characterized by God-led triumph. God-led triumph. Look at verse 14. After describing his distress that led him to leave Troas and travel to most Macedonia, Paul writes this in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Distressed in spirit, had to leave that open door in Troas, Everything is trial and difficulty, but thanks be to God. Why? Because Paul is recounting, remembering, and wants the Corinthians to see that God is the one who is ruling and overruling his life, and he's doing so in directing his life in triumph. The term that Paul employs here, what comes across to us as triumphal procession, is a very graphic word picture it's a word that all of his readers would have been familiar with it's a word that when they heard it read would have called a very familiar scene into the mind's eye of the corinthians a triumphal procession was a victory parade that was given in behalf of a roman general when he returned victorious from the field of battle he was the triumphator he was given this victory parade. And this victory parade took place at least 300 times according to the historical records we have about the history of Rome. The victorious general would ride into Rome in a stately chariot. A laurel crown would be on his head. He would be dressed in special robes of honor. The enemy forces that he defeated, including their general, and if he captured the whole empire the king would be marched before him in array there would be priests who had baskets of burning incense that would be a part of the parade if he had rescued any romans who had been taken captive by enemy forces they also would be part of the parade to demonstrate the greatness and the glory of the general the general is the one who is being celebrated it is his prowess that the parade is all about. The procession would wind its way through the city of Rome and end at the temple of Jupiter where the enemies would be executed unless the general decided to show mercy on some of them and simply have them imprisoned. This parade was a glorious display of the power, the majesty, the honor, the superiority of this general and of the gods of Rome. Every Roman citizen 
would have been familiar with that scene. Just like every American, almost, will be familiar with a scene that unfolds in two or three days in either Denver or Charlotte with a Super Bowl parade. Right? There'll be a parade. We've seen it 49 times before. Everybody knows it's celebrating the victor of this final game for an NFL championship. Paul says when he employs this very common word picture familiar to Roman citizens, he says this is how we should think of ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ and ministers of His gospel. We are being led by God in a victory parade. We're being led by God in a triumphal procession. This procession is being led by God Himself for the honor of our great captain and general, Jesus Christ. Notice two things that Paul says about this God-led triumphal procession. He says, first of all, we're being led in Christ. In Christ. Do you see that phrase? In other words, the ministry in which we engage as well as the lives which we live are in union with Jesus Christ. Christ is our life. Christ is our message. Christ is our ministry. We're not living with Jesus just kind of on the outside or Jesus at arm's length. No, a Christian is somebody who's gotten into Christ. In Christ. We trust Christ and so God now looks upon us and sees Christ because we have become a part of the body of Christ. We have been covered by Christ. So Paul says, we are being led by God in this triumphal procession in Christ. This is the only way that anyone is ever led triumphantly by God. It's in Christ. A person not trusting Jesus Christ as Lord can think that he's okay with God. Can think that God's leading him. Can think that God accepts him. But the Scripture is clear. There is no acceptance from God. There is no intimate fellowship with God and being led by God apart from Jesus Christ. If you're not trusting Christ, you can talk about God. You can convince yourself you're okay with God. You can think God's doing all kind of wonderful things for you, but you're not being led in triumphal procession the way Paul describes it here because the only ones who are a part of that are those who are in Christ. So, the question, the question, is are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you trusting Christ? Is Christ your Lord? Paul says, that's one aspect of this God-led triumphal procession. But then there's a second qualifying dimension he gives to it. He says God always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. The leadership that God has over Paul's life was all-encompassing. It, it was never-ending. He leads His people when our plans unfold exactly the way that we intended for them to unfold. And He leads His people when He changes our plans providentially in ways that we could not anticipate, but that result in opportunity to spread the Gospel 
further. Faithful Christian ministry is characterized by God-led triumph. But not only that, it's also characterized by the God-spread gospel. The God-spread gospel. This is the aroma of Christ that Paul refers to. Look at verse 14, second part of that. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. The knowledge of Christ is being spread through us by God everywhere. In keeping with the word picture of a Roman triumphal procession, God invokes the Im- or Paul invokes the imagery of incense being spread throughout the city as the parade winds its way toward the temple of Jupiter. And the fragrance, he says, consists of the knowledge of Him, the knowledge of Christ. A faithful Christian ministry is one in which God spreads the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And notice how God does this. Paul says He does it through us. Now Paul's thinking primarily of himself as an apostle. And that's true. But he also does it through pastors, through elders, through preachers of the Gospel. And he does it through all the people of Jesus Christ who also are entrusted with the Gospel. And notice where he does it. It's everywhere. Everywhere we go. Wherever we go as Christians, we go as representatives of Jesus Christ. And whether you are thinking about it intentionally or not, you have opportunity, no matter what your job, no matter what your avocation, no matter how you spend your time, to spread the knowledge of Jesus Christ in all of your activities, in all of your relationships. So a faithful Christian ministry is characterized by a God-led triumph and the God-spread gospel. But then Paul goes on to describe the effect of such a ministry. In verses 15 and 16, look at these. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now these are very sobering words. What Paul is saying here is that God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ through us. And he elaborates this metaphor to describe the effects of faithful gospel ministry. And those effects are considered in two directions. There's an upward direction and then there is an outward direction. The upward direction is Godward. Faithful gospel ministry is like a pleasing aroma to God. When the Word of God is rightly set forth, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is rightly proclaimed, God is being glorified. Faithful Christians who share the gospel of Jesus Christ glorify God in doing so. This is true whenever the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Whether people are being saved by it or perish without it. He says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now in one sense this is a very hopeful thought. 
Because what it means, brothers and sisters, is when we rightly handle God's word, proclaim the gospel, whether formally in a church setting like this or informally over coffee with a couple of friends, we are proclaiming that which pleases God. So when you simply, accurately, clearly set forth the life of Jesus Christ who kept God's commandments and fulfilled righteousness, the death of Jesus Christ that took sin upon Himself and suffered the consequences of our sin on the cross under the wrath of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proving that He's greater than sin, death, and hell and that everything He did was successful for salvation, the ascension and the soon return of Jesus Christ and you show Christ as the only way of salvation for sinners and you plead, with sinners, you persuade sinners, you invite sinners, you call sinners to come to Christ. That's an aroma to God that is acceptable. No matter what happens. If it's accepted or if it's rejected. But along with that Godward effect of this ministry, there's a manward, outward effect. Look at the last part of verse 15. You see it as Paul preaching, continues picturing the preaching of the gospel. Not only is rising to heaven as a pleasing aroma to God, but also is spreading among people with a very decisive and dividing effect. Everybody who hears the gospel is being affected by it. Either being saved by it or is perishing despite it. Paul continues to have this triumphal procession in mind with this analogy. And what he's doing is he's saying, brothers and sisters, we're being led by God in triumphal procession. And we are the incense bearers. We are the ones who carry the good news of salvation that's being spread. We're carrying the good news of what our great captain has accomplished for poor lost sinners. To those who hear and refuse to believe the gospel message, what we say is a fragrance from death to death. Those captured soldiers who are being led in that parade celebrating the conquest of the general, when they smelled the incense, they're reminded that they're smelling it and they're there because they got defeated. They're lost. They've been taken. They're captives. And that smell causes them to anticipate what waits because it was well known that their lives are in the hands of this general and that most likely their lives are going to be offered up in sacrifice to the god Jupiter. And so the aroma filling the city that caused so many to celebrate and rejoice to them. It was the smell of death. It came from death, resulted in death. But Paul says in analogous form, contrary to that, to those who hear the gospel and do believe faithful gospel ministry, that message is a fragrance from life to life. To the citizens of Rome, to the Roman army returning to smell the incense, to have it fill the city. That was just a reminder of what took place on the battlefield. They won. Their captain was successful. And it was a foretaste of the glory that awaited them in the empire because 
they are a part of this victorious entourage being led by their commander. Paul employs this metaphor to make a serious point. Faithful gospel ministry always makes a division between people. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, one of two responses is always made by every person who hears it. That's a sobering thought. Some believe and are being saved by it. Some do not believe and they remain on the path to everlasting destruction without it. Friends, do you see what that means for a gathering like this? What that means is that as Christ has been proclaimed today in your presence, as you have heard the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the only Savior this world has, as you've been encouraged to trust your soul to Christ, you're making a decision. You're deciding either to ignore it, reject it, tamp down any stirrings in your heart about it, or you're saying, yes, it's true. You bow before the Christ who's being proclaimed. You acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. And if you acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, you're being saved by His work in your behalf. If you reject that, don't think that you're indifferent. You're not indifferent. It's impossible to be indifferent. If you reject that, then you're staying on the path that will lead to everlasting damnation. You're under the wrath of God still. It's exactly the way it is put in John chapter 3, verse 36, that those who believe will be saved. But those who do not obey the Gospel are condemned already. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality here. The preaching of the Gospel always divides. You believe and are saved. You do not believe and you're condemned. So which one are you today? Is this good news that there's a Savior for sinners, is that the fragrance of life to life to you? Or is it an aroma of death to death? Because it's one or the other. And my friend, I would plead with you today. God has you here now. It's not an accident that you're here. He has you here to call you. To call you to know His Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. To bow to Him as Lord. Come to Christ. Trust Christ. If you will trust Christ as Lord, He will accept you. He'll receive you. You'll come to be in Christ. And in Christ, you'll be reconciled to God. You'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be given everlasting life. And it happens not by doing something, not by turning over a new leaf, not by joining a church, not by getting baptized. It happens by trusting Christ. Believe Him. Take Him at His word. Call Him your Lord. Faithful Christian ministry inevitably concludes trials and it always results in triumph. And then just in closing, real quickly, I want to show you a third thing in the very last verse here. 
the first, last part of the 16th verse and the 17th verse, faithful Christian ministry depends on God, not man. When Paul contemplates the seriousness of everything he's just written about what God is doing, how the gospel divides, he asks the question. It's a good question. It's a logical question that comes to anyone's mind who handles the things of God with this understanding. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, that's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer because the question includes the answer. Nobody is sufficient for these things. How can a mere mortal ever hold up to this kind of responsibility and activity? What Paul is saying is, it does not require or does not depend upon man. Paul does not see himself equal to the task of being an instrument that will cause the aroma of Christ to go out either to the salvation or condemnation of those who hear. Yet he knows that if he faithfully fulfills his calling, he inevitably will be such an instrument. So he writes what he does in this next verse, verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What he's saying is it doesn't depend on me. I'm not up to this, but it does depend on God. And he's more than up to it. A faithful gospel ministry is commissioned by God. He calls people to it. He places us in it as a follower of Christ. You have been given a role in such a ministry. A faithful gospel ministry is carried out in the conscious sight of God with a sense of stewardship and accountability. The day will come, brothers and sisters, when we will give an account for the riches of grace that have been entrusted to us. What are we doing with those riches of grace? Are we spreading them? Are we telling others? Are we making disciples? Are we just hoarding it, thinking, well, I'm on the way to heaven. That's good enough. A faithful gospel ministry speaks for God in Christ. There it is again. That is, not as some disinterested bystander, but as one who is in vital union with Christ. The Christ we proclaim is the Christ in whom we live. And Paul says all of this makes me different than peddlers of God's word. Peddlers of God's word. He's talking about religious hucksters. If you don't know who I'm talking about, just watch TBN. People who stand in the name of God and treat the good news of God as if it's a commodity. As if it's a product to be marketed. As if it's something to call you to accept on your terms or on terms that are finally acceptable to you. Those who would shave off the hard edges of truth from God's Word. Who would edit God's Word. Those who would take it upon themselves to ignore certain things that the Lord has said. Paul says, we're not hucksters. We're not peddlers of God's word. We're not trying to make a sale. You know, if you have a consumeristic mentality about the gospel, then in consumerism, the consumer's always king. What's the consumer want? That's what you give them. That's not true for faithful gospel ministry. Faithful gospel ministry is a stewardship of what God has revealed, and we proclaim what God has said. So Paul says, rather, we are men of sincerity, heralds of the message, messengers, not originators of the message. The ministry of the gospel is a stewardship God entrusts to his people. Paul understood that, and as an apostle, he was determined to be faithful in the way he discharged his stewardship. 
Brothers and sisters, though you and I are not apostles, we have a part in that stewardship as well. We also have been commissioned by God to make disciples in this world. What are you doing? If you're a Christian, what are you doing consciously to try to make disciples? What did you do last week? Last month? Last year? We have various ways you can plug in to get involved in this type of ministry. You want to be trained? We can train you. you. You want guidance? We can guide you. There are simple structures in place here for you to become a participant in being discipled and discipling others. If you want more information about this, see Pastor Jared. He'll, he'll tell you. It's simple. You can do it. If you're a Christian, you can do it. Brothers and sisters, hear what God says about this responsibility, the stewardship that is ours. Paul felt it deeply. So should we. With Paul, we must commit ourselves to being faithful to that commission. That faithfulness will inevitably involve trials, but that faithfulness always will result in triumph because God is the one who leads us triumphantly. And we can be sure that along the way and at the end of the day, we are going to be victorious because our king has gone forth and he's conquered. So that's what we're called to be and do. So stay the course if you're on it. Keep pressing on, brothers, sisters. Let's don't stop because we are a part of something far bigger than any one of us can fully measure, but the Word of God tells us is true. God is marching forth, leading us in this victory that will redound to His glory for all eternity. Let's pray together. We thank you, O God, for giving us this word. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who came to save poor lost sinners like us. We thank you for your love for us to not withhold truth from us. We ask that you would help us to respond to you in love. For Jesus' sake. Amen.